Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joel Show podcast. Today on the pod, Keith Baldry joins us for the week that was in politics. As the NDP feels the heat on the carbon tax and the opposition parties walk away from a viable climate policy, plus housing feud, provincial governments don't want the feds negotiating with municipalities directly. City councils don't want their communities rezoned by Victoria, and the feds don't want the Metro Vancouver board charging developer fees. Can't we just build housing and get along? And contributor Jerry Mayer Judson loves traditional Christmas songs. Producer Stephen likes R&B holiday music. The debate is on. What Christmas song do you love to hate? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Uh, let's talk about another issue that people all have an opinion about. That, of course, is photo radar. Well, most people in BC actually like photo radar, according to a new poll. Research Co. says two out of three people support mobile speed cameras similar to the unpopular photo radar program, which was scrapped in 2001. Of course, you may remember that uh, particular era when uh, the government hired contractors in unmarked vans when they were taking uh, pictures of us and of our license plates. This is a little different. At the same time, people generally support uh, photo radar, and the same number of people also support lowering speed limits in residential areas to 30 kilometers per hour. More than 40% of people polled say they were they see a speeding car in their neighborhood at least once daily. Would you want me to talk a little bit about this issue is Grant Gottkatru. He's a former traffic officer in New Westminster in West Vancouver. He's now a forensic criminal and traffic consultant at ForensicTrafficPro.com. Uh, Grant, thank you for joining us. It's always my pleasure, Jeff. Uh, first and foremost, are you surprised by the numbers? Well, I mean, really, at the end of the day, a poll. I mean, who was polled? People on bicycles or don't drive? Uh, <laughs> like, really? So what's the sample size? Uh, it was 800. Because I don't, because personally, I don't know anybody, and I have a lot of contacts out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't, I don't know anybody who supports photo radar. We, we, we all agree we support the red light camera because that shows definitively that you've gone through a red light. Photo radar is a bit different, so I'm, I'm always suspicious when I hear polls like that. Mm-hmm. So. Um, my question to you is: Do these cameras broadly? make things safer in your mind? Well, I call them a, a, a moolah bovine. That's a yeah. nice way of saying a cash cow. Yeah. Um, because is the idea of these cameras to change driving behavior and get the bad drivers, or is it just to um, collect revenue? Well, keep in mind, if you get a photo radar ticket, and we're going to call it what it is, you can call it intersection enforcement, whatever you want. Mm-hmm. It's photo radar. They're using radar. I know that. I've, I've got the manual. Um, so you don't any. There's no penalty for you. You you get a fine as a registered owner. There's there's so, but there's no points. It doesn't go in your driving record. So at the end of the day, it's not going to change anybody's driving behavior because you just pay the fine. You carry on. If you're a bad driver, you'll just go. Well, it's just the price of doing business. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll never lose their license. They can speed all they want through these cameras, 
And those are the people that the police want to get. We want to get those guys off the road because they shouldn't, because they're bad drivers. But mm-hmm. so this, this doesn't change a person's driving behavior necessarily if they're already a bad driver because they know there's no penalty for it, mm-hmm. right? And one thing I experienced in my career uh, was most motorists will agree with certain motoring laws until they themselves get caught. Then suddenly it's the calamity of the century in their life, right? <laughs> yeah, I get that. So, uh, in many so I think a lot of, Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I'll let you finish your thought. I was just going to say, a lot of people that, that I suspect that a lot of people that, would su- that support this type of unreliable technology, which is what it is, um, would suddenly scream blue bloody murder if they got one themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's guess, always the nippy stuff. These cameras, at the end of the day, they're sort of a mechanical witness to a red light violation. As you say, it doesn't necessarily lead to de- a deterrence. Do you think there's a, an incentive for contractors also to just increase revenue and either you sort of not game the system, but there is a desire to to at least have as many or maximize the potential for as many tickets going out? Well, absolutely. There's there's always that specter that's hanging over, and you always have to question not only those those companies, but the government that takes the contracts on. It's it's like, okay, are you just doing this just to make more money and take more money out of our pockets? Because I think as as a peoples, we're sick of it. We're mm-hmm. sick of tired of government being in our pockets. Yeah. Uh, the other uh, part of the poll, it was, it was 800 people that were polled in, in, in the province here, um, that people support the idea of lowering speed limits in residential areas to 30 kilometers per hour. What do you think of that? And some would argue that's just too slow, 50 is better, but others would argue, look, I see a lot of folks speeding uh, in, in a lot of these residential areas with kids playing and all that sort of thing. What are your thoughts on this? What do you think of it? Well, it depends on the layout of a neighborhood at the end of the day. Um, if it's a if it's a busier street, let's say something like Prairie Avenue in Port Coquitlam, there it's residential in a lot of those areas. No, you don't put that down to thirty because it's a, it's a thoroughfare, it's a main road. But most of the residential streets are, are side streets; they're they're off the beaten path, and you got cars on both sides, and it's kind of narrow and tricky. Uh, I don't think lowering it to forty would be an issue. I think thirty. It depends on the layout of the area, quite frankly, because laneways, for example, are, are 20 kilometers an hour, whether there's a sign there or not. So, mm-hmm. And I just wanted to follow up yeah. one thing, Jazz. Mm-hmm. When I say that this photo radar is inherently unreliable, it's because radar, when it's used for speed enforcement by itself, is always unreliable. In, in the province of British Columbia, for the police to give out a speeding ticket, if they're using radar or they're using laser, they have to have a visual estimation first. The radar or the laser is just a corroborative tool. So, and, and there's a lot of mechanical and electrical interference that can trigger a radar reading, mm-hmm. which is the reason why you have to have a visual. You have to have okay. something okay. above and beyond just the radar reading. So because these systems are only using radar in, in, and then giving you a photo, there's no... It's very difficult to say, yeah, that was that car that was speeding because there's no human element to say it was speeding. Mm -hmm. Uh, In Vancouver here, there's push to have uh, more of these cameras, although most of the cameras in 
The red light cameras are in the lower mainland. In the city of Vancouver proper, there's a push to, to build more. My understanding is to put all of them in, it would cost the city about $20 million. They got their own financial challenges right now with a 10.7% 10, 10. property tax increase. Last year, 7.6% uh, expected this year, or coming up in 2024. Um, and there's been a lot of conversation about this is the wrong way to go. My argument is, look, we have ICBC, you have traffic departments and the VPD, hard work and folks. <laughs> That's where the deterrent should come from, should it not, rather than more and more cameras? Or do you think we, there is some value to having some more of these cameras out, out, out in the province? Uh, no, the, you need to have that human contact, the immediate, the immediate you got caught with your hand in the cookie jar. Mm. So that the, the repercussions are immediate and, and, and you get the ticket, you get the points, you get the fine. Uh, you know, and depending on how fast you're going, you get your car towed. Um, the, the problem with these government officials like this, this one in Vancouver who wants more cameras there, is like, who's going to pay for that? Well, it's us, the taxpayer. And that's not a really good use of our money at the end of the day. They need to, you know, there's bigger things that the government can be spending our hard-earned money on. Um, and I think that's what a lot of people forget. So, yeah, it's going to cost $20 million. Well, who do you think is going to pay for that? Yeah, oh, the taxpayers. And like I said, the property tax increases are significant in Vancouver last year and the upcoming year, and, and that's part of the issue. And you're talking about a city, by the way, they still had a paper cup fee. So, yeah, they have some challenges, right. <laughs> challenges in Vancouver. Grant, thank you so much for your time today. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. Always my pleasure, and you as well. Now, if you're walking uh, through uh, Pacific Center Mall, probably about a week ago, uh, I was hearing Christmas songs. Jerry, have you gone down there at all? No, I have not. But uh, I do hear that in the grocery store as well, they are playing Christmas songs, at least at Superstore. And I know I was listening to satellite radio coming in uh, this morning, and they have at least two... Uh, dedicated radio uh, radio stations now, two channels dedicated to uh, Christmas songs. And I got to tell you, driving in three times this week, uh, I had nothing but Christmas songs on. That voluntarily? That, voluntarily. Freak. I, that's, <laughs> no offense. It's, I usually figure December 1st, okay, it's all go, but... This year, right? this year this week, it came early. I I generally am listening to Christmas songs this week. Is that, that's wrong. I don't know. It couldn't be me, but I support I you. But you know, it is funny when you talk about Christmas songs. It's pretty black and white. Either it's acceptable in November or it's not. That's number one. Which clearly, based on what you just said, it's not. The other one is people either love Christmas songs. Or they hate Christmas songs, except for probably Christmas Day. That's correct. And then the third conversation is about uh, what 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 actually makes a good Christmas song. So there's some songs people love, and some people just love to hate certain songs. That's true as well. Right? We were having this conversation. We're going to bring in uh, our producer Stephen Chang as well. Stephen uh, and and I were talking, and Jerry were talking about that very issue number three. Now it's fair to say we were talking about this earlier. You love traditional Christmas songs. Yes. If I have to listen to Christmas songs, they're they are traditional. They are. Yes, I'm not a fan of like pop Christmas music. I'm not out here. I don't have Michael Bublé's Christmas album at my house. None of that. No. So we <laughs> he starts already. So where did that come from? You went to Catholic school. Is I that did. Where? Yeah, I think it was totally my Catholic upbringing. Well, just in the school, like I, I was so steeped in a traditional Christmas music, I guess. And uh-huh. B, I think that as I became an adult, I was like, I'm not voluntarily in, in 
I'm not supporting Christmas music. I'm not doing it anymore. I've been so Christmased out for my entire life. I hit the quota. I'm done. All right, Stephen, how about you? Now, uh, you are, the traditional songs aren't your favorite, right? Yeah, see, like Jerry, I was also uh, kind of raised in a Catholic school environment for the first few years of my life, and I have been overexposed to traditional Christmas music, so I kind of prefer the alternative. Oh, you do. So which would be just R- pop. pop and R&B. Okay, so yeah. tell, play something for me that you actually like. Okay, we're starting with me. Cool. Well, you know what, Jazz? I'm t- sick and tired of hearing all these old traditional Christmas songs, but uh-huh. you know who doesn't fail me? Jazz, Canada's own Justin Bieber. It's the most beautiful okay, that's your thing. Does this do anything for you, Jerry? It, nothing good. <laughs> Not at all. How, how dare you? It is, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I can't. I, I, I just... Oh, God, I hate it so bad. Really? It's like it irritates you? It does a little bit. It's, that's, it's fine. It's fine. Everyone's entitled to their opinion, but oh, my God. You don't like that? I don't. Oh, look at Jerry. Well, look at this. Maybe if you sing it. It's, it's memorable. No, don't make him sing it. <laughs> okay, so, so what, what do you like? Um, okay, so my all-time fave, I even clipped my favorite part, is Oh, Holy Night, as performed by Nat King Cole in 1960. Oh. Okay, see, you, uh, you can't. How you are you not get, moved? Yeah, you can't really complain. It's a mood. It's a mood. It's too it's, slow. It's really. Uh, it, it's 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 fine. It sounds good. It is. He sounds great. It's but. slow. It's not as catchy as Justin Bieber. I'll give you that. Yeah, yeah. I forgot the song existed. I'm sorry, Jerry. Ouch, Kabibble. <laughs> I think Ariana Grande did this one. If that suits your tastes more. Uh, Mariah Carey has done it if you want. Okay, is there a particular one that you really hate, Stephen? Oh, well, see, this is a hot take for me, Jazz. Um, A Christmas song that I love to hate. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to play. I'm not going to play, Jazz. This is too much. I've heard this way too much. This is the number one song. Uh, for Christmas already, you can call it already, right? It this is, is, yeah. It's it. it I, th- I was reading on uh, November fifteenth, average about two percent of Spotify listeners listen to Christmas songs, mm-hmm. but it just picks up every single day, every single day. And the number one song last year, November first to December fifteenth alone, all I want for Christmas. It's way too much. This plays way too much, Jazz. Honestly, when Mariah Carey's ice broke, my, my heart broke too because I was like, I don't, I can't stand to hear this. Again? I can't. <laughs> no. Okay. She's so, back. So, okay, that's the one you hate. Is there one that you particularly don't like, Jerry? Oh, geez. I, I don't know if uh, this, is, this is, I don't know if you've heard about this before. I don't think I've ever talked about how much I hate Wonderful Christmas Time by Paul McCartney. Oh, this one. Okay, like the the synth comes on and my skin crawls. (laughs) I hate this song so much. I think he should have to pay me money personally for pain and suffering. I hate it so bad. Like, I can't. Like, you're reacting to it now. I have like a physical reaction. It makes me cringe. I think it's because of my history in working in retail over Christmas time. I did not have a wonderful Christmas time. This came up all the time, this song. I was not, I'm never having a wonderful Christmas time when this song. Song is playing. It's is it, it's a bit bland. Is that the uh, as well? I don't know. I think it's just it's too repetitive. It's about I mean it's about having wonderful Christmas time, but it's about nothing. It's not. There's no story. There's no nothing. It's just saccharine nonsense, and not even a good way. I'm sorry. I'll stop talking. I hate it so much. But pe- there are songs that people just love to hate, and that's yours. That is that's mine. Wow, wow. <laughs> so when's okay? My final question to you: When's the right time to actually listen to Christmas songs in your car for me? I'm obviously very. I'm too. Early 
early is what you're telling me. I today. mean, you are you can do whatever you want in your own personal vehicle. When I start when I listen to Christmas music, it is yeah. when I wake up on December twenty fifth, and that is it. And That's that is it? all. And the only one we put on, I realize that I'm an outlier and that I am insane, but the only one we put on is a Charlie Brown Christmas. That's the only Christmas album that plays in my house, is the and, jazz piano one. And it's and it's only it's only Christmas Day. And only Christmas Day for me. I don't know why. I'm just not a Christmas spirit person. I'm such Holy. a Scrooge. I know. So I know. Like I'm terrible. Four days of that month. Yeah, I'm not doing it. You're not doing I'm it. I'm not doing it. I do not participate voluntarily. Oh, God, you're boring. Wow. I know. I freely admit this. Stephen, when do you start listening to Christmas music? Well, Jerry, I'm a Filipino descent. We start in September. <laughs> Pre-Halloween. Okay, look, we, we, we were going to bring this up, but, but this is, okay, I'm going off on a tangent. What happened to the Christmas tree that you had up on, last year for Christmas? Oh, oh, we're going there. We're, I'm going to okay. go there. I have to go there. Okay, but, well, uh, <laughs> so I have one of those Canadian tire trees, and sometimes I just pre-lit. get too lazy. It's pre-lit, okay. pre-lit. That's all right. Flashing so, lights. So you, so it's not, it's not like you got to, like, Take it down and, you know, f- uh, find the, uh, the, the the firefighters' respective communities who, who, who take uh, trees and, and chop them up for you. This is a pre-lit tree from uh, from uh, Canadian Tire. Oh, yeah, I'm cheap. Okay, so <laughs> no, no. Okay, Consistent. So, so where, where's the tree right now, Stephen? It sits in my living room by the kitchen. Has it been sitting there since it, Christmas or it's, what? It's, it's a year-long thing. It's, 2022. It's, he has not taken his Christmas tree down. Since December uh, 2022, no. Uh, uh, but why not? Hey, okay, it, it makes the living room look really pretty. I'm going to be honest here. It, it's a How nice... Do you're a millennial. Get the fairy lights. Get the string lights. Like every yeah. other self-respecting millennial, Stephen why Chang. What are you doing? The string lights are on the tree, so it saves me time. It saves me money. It saves me my electricity so sometimes. If, if you're in, like, in, in the you. summertime, if you're sitting at home... Do you actually light up the Christmas tree? Oh, no, I don't light it up. That's 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 gonna kill my PC hydro bill. No, we're gonna <laughs> okay. we're gonna leave that thing off. That thing turns so off. So it's just the taking season. up space. You have a sculpture. It goes in the corner. I have enough room. Cheapers, <laughs> creepers. I'm putting lights up on the house this weekend, and you haven't taken down the Christmas tree from last year. See, here's the thing: you have to spend time putting up the lights over uh, the weekend. I've already done that because <laughs> that tree never went down. So we're good. Wow, <laughs> it's efficiency. It's wow. efficiency. All right, it is efficiency. Lots occurring uh, this past week when it comes to federal and provincial politics. It was a busy, uh, busy week, especially in Victoria. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the week that was in politics, Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief, joins us now. Hello, Keith. Hey, guys. I don't know where to start. You've got the whole Surrey policing issue. You've got uh, a carbon tax issue, uh, especially with that letter with uh, the Minister Josie Osborne. Let's start there for a moment. Uh, walk me through, uh, in regards to this memo, where I guess Ms. Osborne, the Minister of Energy, sent it to, to herself, uh, but the memo appears to really show or highlight the NDP's growing concern about carbon tax uh, backlash. Yeah, so this is a memo that was composed based on a conversation she had with what she's calling an advisor um, and taking notes from what he was suggesting uh, and then uh, put in an email form and sent an email to herself, then somehow inadvertently dropping the email or printing it off, which was another mistake, uh, and then putting it in her sheaf of papers and lost it somewhere in the hallways of the legislature, only to be found or to make its way into the hands of the BC United Party, which revealed it in the uh, legislature. So uh, basically, it's two parts. The first part is about um, quoting uh, that Premier David Eby, or PDE as he's referred to in the memo, is looking for a, quote, big and shiny affordability measure. 
and suggests there's a couple of options. One is returning a portion of the uh, carbon tax back to the people on their monthly hydro bill. So a monthly rebate based on the carbon tax and or a freeze on BC hydro rates. Both have been done by governments in the past. Mm -hmm. Uh, The NDP, actually, this would be the second time if they get a hydro rebate that would offer one. Uh, They famously froze hydro rates back in the 90s. Uh, The Campbell government sort of did a de facto freeze for a couple years. Then the other part of the memo talks about basically they don't have enough electricity being generated right now to power a lot of the projects that are on the drawing board around BC, industrial projects. So it's sort of a twofold. Uh, and basically, and, and Josie Osborne, the managing minister, to her credit, to, didn't shy away, faced reporters for a fairly long time in the hallway to answer questions. And rather than refuting this memo, agreed that, in her words, everything's on the table when it comes to things associated with energy costs in BC in regards to the planning for the February budget. So it seems that on the table includes some sort of rebate and or a hydro rate freeze. One or both seem to be coming our way. And that speaks to the broader conversation about carb- carbon tax and that uh, um, the people are talking about it and it may be and could potentially be an election issue, perhaps a major election issue come 2024. Well, it's going to be interesting. So the BC United Party and the BC Conservative, who are in a rush to crowd each other off the political dance floor, uh, are embracing the same policies on this issue. Notably, now uh, BC United announcing they would they would get rid of the entire Clean BC program, which is far more than the carbon tax. Carbon tax is a big part of this, but we're talking a whole bunch of rebates, uh, incentives um, to, you know, for capital expansion of green-friendly um, changes to your homes, to, to buildings, uh, right across the board about get, reducing greenhouse gas emissions and becoming more green uh, and clean energy. So BC United, I think, worried that the Conservatives are outflanking them on the right, have now adopted a position that all that's going to get tossed, that they want no part of that, including the carbon tax. And the Conservatives essentially appear to have the same position. Uh, the danger for that position is there's probably a lot of support for incentives and rebates and things like that to improve uh, things to go green rather than opposition to them. There is opposition to the carbon tax, but only about a 50-50 split in B.C. Um, So I think it's interesting. Both parties are trying to find a lane to drive in right now, uh, and they both want to share the same lane. And they may have taken a lane that's a little too wide. I think they both, if they just confine themselves to say, we'll get rid of the carbon tax, that would probably be enough to attract some support. But now it's going to the point of potentially, I think, alienating some of the younger voters out there. And I don't mean university students. I mean, you look at the top end of millennials. That's the biggest bulge of the population right now. The oldest millennial is 42 years old. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of support for green uh, incentive projects in that age cohort who are genuinely concerned about climate change. And the United Party and the Conservatives run the risk of alienating that significant portion of the population by rejecting everything about uh, going uh, clean energy. It's interesting that when Gordon Campbell introduced the carbon tax, uh, the NDP ran uh, on a campaign to, quote, axe the tax, and now they want to preserve the Clean uh, clean BC program and the carbon tax. And the party that introduced carbon tax now has vowed, at the very least, they want to uh, completely change Clean BC. But as Kevin Falcon in this studio, when I asked him if Pierre Polyev gets rid of carbon tax, he said he's getting rid of it as well. So it's a complete change in just over yep. a, a generation and a half. 
Isn't that weird? <laughs> no, it is. It is a complete flip flop by both sides. Quite frankly, over time, um, the, the BC Liberals under Gordon Campbell were hailed as innovators and pioneers when it came to fighting climate change because they were the first jurisdiction in North America to put a price on carbon emissions. And they were congratulated for that. And the NDP back then was the ones who were caught out of step with the public. Now you come full circle, and it's the NDP championing measures to fight climate change, and it's the old BC Liberal Party, now called the BC United Party, and this offshoot, if you will, because it's made up of two former members of that party, the BC Conservatives, who embrace the exact opposite position of being super aggressive when it comes to fighting climate change. Now, the former uh, Minister of Environment here in British Columbia, Mary Polak, uh, who was a part of that government in 2008, will be joining me at 4.30 to talk a little bit about some of the decisions you've got to make behind the scenes, balancing uh, the environment and dealing with climate change at the same time, making sure uh, you have a tax base to pay for healthcare and education and some of these programs that are dealing with climate change itself. So she'll be joining me at 4.30. Now, before we go to a break, I just want to get your thoughts on this Surrey policing issue. A campaign, a PR campaign against the NDP uh, is is going to be beginning very soon uh, in regards to the NDP being blamed uh, for a property tax increase, which hasn't been announced yet. We're expecting one in uh, early December in regards to projected property tax increase for 2024. Uh, you know, strong words from Brenda Locke uh, this week on this show and Mike Farnworth was on this show as well. Where do you see all this going? I see it going with Surrey Police Services. I don't think the court challenges, the court challenge from Brenda Locke and her counsel is going to succeed. I've seen no legal person say that, with legal background, saying that's got a really good chance of succeeding, arguing their constitutional rights have been abrogated by the appointment of an of a administrator instead of the police board. Uh, municipalities don't have a lot of constitutional rights. They, the, the Constitution actually gives the provinces the, the control over municipalities, or the right to create them. But... Uh, it's going to remain a political issue, and Brenda Locke is going to understandably um, try to make this an issue going into the next, to last as long as she goes into the next uh, municipal election campaign, presuming she's running for a re-election. She'll run on an issue that she's going to brand a tax that results, no matter how big it is or how small it is, it's going to be an NDP government police tax, is how she's going to describe it. And she's going to hang that around the neck of uh, the government and try to frame that as a, an issue to put in front of the voters come the next municipal election. It's probably smart politics on that issue. doesn't necessarily play smart politics when you look at all the other things Surrey's looking for from the provincial government, whether you know, talk things about like transit or, or housing or um, just anything a government is looking to a senior government for. Mm-hmm. It's, the breakdown of the relationship is significant. Um, Mike Farnworth says she was a disgrace because she tried to label the Surrey Police Services as an NDP police force, politicizing a police force like that. So it's a seriously bad, broken relationship between the two sides. But neither side is going to back down. Frank Farnworth and the government are not going to back down here. And again, unless she can win in court, it's the, the ball rolls towards the Surrey Police Service because the administrator is putting together a budget for the first time. And that's going to be the budget. Even if Surrey Council rejects it, it'll go back to the Director of Police Services who reports to Mike Farnworth. Mm-hmm. Guess which side he's going to side on. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Now, I've been hearing a lot about jurisdictional overreach. The feds don't like what some of the, the regional governments are doing. The provincial government doesn't like what the feds are doing. The municipal governments don't like what the provincial government's doing in regards to rezoning. We'll talk about that next after the break. But we spent a lot of time talking to Brenda Locke and Mike Farnworth this week. This week. Uh, so we're going to go out to commercial break. Uh, playing some of their comments. Take a listen. We'll be right back.
This is a decision forever that will impact our taxpayer, and we just can't believe that the NDP would impose this police tax on our city. It's just a continuation of the delaying tactics that the mayor has been trotting out that involve lawyers and a lot of money that could be better spent elsewhere. The NDP is imposing a significant, probably 20 or more, a double-digit tax increase on, on our residents. Not just for today, not just for 2024, but forever. The transition continues. It doesn't delay the transition. It doesn't stop us from moving forward. New West has just recently made comments that they have lost already too many of their members to Surrey Police Service. We know that's happened in West Vancouver and other municipal police forces. Where else are they going to get constables? What really needs to happen is for the mayor to understand the decision has been made, it is time to move on. This has never, ever been about um, public safety in our city. Just because somebody has a philosophical reason for wanting to see a provincial police, they can do it in another city, not in ours. Calling it the NDP police, I think it does a disservice to the men and women put their lives on the line every single day policing in Surrey. It's just disrespectful. Jazz, it's going to be in 16-point red on the tax form, and it's going to be the Surrey NDP police tax. It will be bold and loud and proud. I'll be clear again, there is no more money. If you're just joining us, we are speaking to Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. We're talking about the week that was in politics. Now, yesterday, Keith, I spoke to the Federal uh, Housing Minister, Sean Fraser, and one of the questions uh, I had for him was in regards to Ontario uh, Premier Doug Ford uh, complaining about the fact that feds shouldn't be negotiating directly with municipalities. While here in Metro Vancouver, you got city councils not too happy with Victoria rezoning their communities, uh, and of course, the feds not happy with the Metro Vancouver Board for charging a developer's uh, development cost charges, even though the feds said we're going to get rid of GST when it comes to building rental housing. So, yeah, the feds, the provincial government, the municipal governments, they're all going at each other. My my comment is, can't we just build housing? What do you make of all these announcements, municipally, provincially, federally? Because it still seems we're still going to be very short in regards to building houses. We built about 200,000, 220,000 a year. We need, depending on what study you look at, 500 to 800,000 homes a year. I mean, it seems to me that we're not going to get out of this anytime soon. No, and one of the big issues that doesn't get talked about a lot, although it does get mentioned, is someone's got to build the housing. Mm-hmm. Now, we have a critical shortage of skilled workers uh, who are needed on also other projects as well. I mean, there's constant construction in municipalities and cities. Uh, there are cranes, you know, on in the skyline as more things are built, not just housing, but there's only so many trained, skilled workers to build. So that's one issue. There's also an issue of we're still a disrupted supply chain when it comes to some materials. I'm sitting here looking out my window at a construction project, the legislature, um, of a fire escape. It's been now 18 months, I think, to build this because they can't get any steel, enough steel to build this. So um, this is a, a, one of the big challenges, other than just the, the huge number that has to be met. In terms of this jurisdictional, I love how Doug Ford calls it jur- jurisdictional creep. Yeah. It's, he's complaining about uh, Ottawa doing an end run around his government, and as you say, doing these one-off deals with municipalities. Uh, tr- tried to do it in, in B.C. This, as you mentioned, the development charges pushed forward by uh, uh, Metro uh, has caused the feds to think twice. But you've also got the B.C. government here reaching over the heads of municipalities to uh, to build more housing. I think what you're seeing is housing's a hot political issue. And mm-hmm. all levels of government do what they can to seize 
uh, control of that or at least take some advantage from it. So you've got four or five, four bills in front of the BC House, well, some of them have now passed, uh, which is the biggest housing package legislative-wise in BC history, uh, which is reflective that that's the dominant political issue. So you see Ottawa wants to get a hold of that as well. If you recall, Justin Trudeau got into a lot of hot water in the summer when he said housing is not the federal responsibility. He was lambasted for that. Since then, Sean Fraser's become the housing minister, and he has a, a sort of a, a different plan. That's why he's been very active in trying to get more housing built with the federal hand involved in it like never before. Um, are we going to see any sort of drop in housing prices, do you think? Or are we, we, that's, just, that's just naive thinking. It's just not going to happen. Even if we start building more supply, everybody talks about supply. Well, the, the reality is the number's not going to drop anytime soon because it, we, we, we're just too late to the game. Well, I don't see. I mean, so Everett doesn't predict a big drop. I mean, I think there will be, um, just anecdotally, Victoria is a very sought-after neighbor, uh, place to live over where I am, and there's been a little bit of a slowdown in the market. But the, the prices have softened a little bit, but I don't think going from $1.2 million to $1.1 million suddenly makes it affordable for people. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're not going back to the days of 250,000-year-old single-detached family, $250,000 single-detached uh, family homes. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, are we going to go, I think the in Metro, the, the average price last month was $1.1 million or about $1 million. If it goes to 900000 is it really more affordable? So in, in real terms, the, the prices aren't going to drop, particularly when we've got so such a high level of immigration. 140 to 150,000 new people, residents coming to BC every year. That puts enormous pressure on housing, on schools, on all services that the public is looking for. And that alone should keep prices high for the foreseeable future. Well, it's going to be interesting. One more week, uh, I guess, left in the legislative session? Yep. One more. Well, it's going to be fun next week, that's for sure. Thank you, Keith. Okay, have a great weekend, everyone. Well, following the worldwide debut of South by, South by Southwest, the documentary feature 299 Queen Street West has come to Vancouver. After each screening, there is an intimate and interactive with iconic Much Music VJs and the director, Sean Menard. Uh, with unprecedented access to the Much Music archives, the two-hour feature tells the origin story and meteor- meteoric rise of the seminal music and pop culture brand, highlighting its beginning as a scrappy Canadian television upstart. Now, the film showcases how much music's rise in popularity intersected with the rap music entering the mainstream, the birth of grunge and alternative rock, and pop stars causing teenage hysteria at the iconic street-level studio. Now, the story of much is told through the uh, through the eyes of VJs and on-air personalities like Erica M., Rick the Temp, Sukin Lee, uh, Denise Donlan, Steve Anthony, and our next guest. Monica Diol was the host of Electric Circus. Uh, take a listen to some of uh, her on-air performance, and I think this is about late 1980s. Take a listen. Okay, everybody, let's synchronize our watches. Uh Uh-huh, just like I thought. It's time for the nation to go dance. Live on the show tonight, Jack Soul and Billy Ray Martin. Put your loving arms around me. This is Electric Circus. It definitely was Electric Circus. In fact, the dance party show began on City TV in 1988. Uh, Monica Diol, thank you for dropping by. 
I'm so happy to be here. Your head was bobbing <laughs> as you were playing that music. It just brings back the energy and the memories, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Always. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm very curious. Um, this documentary, and uh, it's going to be playing on Crave in December, but it's playing tonight here in Vancouver and uh, Victoria tomorrow. Um, for you, when you first saw it, um, what, what was going through your mind? Um, well, I saw it at the red carpet premiere in Toronto, mm -hmm. and it was the first time that most of us saw it mm -hmm. together in the same room was the first time. And a lot of us hadn't seen each other in a long time. Um, and, you know, it's the interesting thing about doing any, um, any work that, that, that we do, unless it's something like this where you're actually in control, mm -hmm. um, you do an interview and you don't know what angle the person's going to take. You don't know what's going to, you know, how the edit's going to work. So I watched it um, kind of apprehensive, mm -hmm. to be honest, and uh, kind of cringing a little bit all the way through it. Really? Yeah. Yeah. How come? Because um, it made me very self-conscious to sit there, kind of. Yeah, I, I always kind of cringed a little bit watching. But it was interesting because um, what's cool about coming to the screenings, mm -hmm. I'll tell you, because you can sit at home and watch it on Crave, sure. Mm -hmm. But what's cool about the screenings is it's not like going to a theater and watching a movie. Okay, it's in a concert hall, and there's hundreds and hundreds in a few cities, a couple of thousand people, mm -hmm. and it's like going to a concert. You know the words, you know the songs, you know the personalities. It's like going to a concert, and the whole audience is reacting and like laughing in the same places and screaming in the same places and clapping, and it was such a great feeling. So I went from being apprehensive and like my 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 hands just about to go over my eyes the whole entire time mm -hmm. to kind of going this is actually totally cool because of the way people are reacting yeah well it speaks to a time when we had a collective experience compared to today with streaming and everything else that goes around totally uh, and we all know uh, what much music was about what do you think that was special about that particular network at that moment because there's lots of tv stations there always have been but what is it about much that resonated that era resonated so deeply with canadian the canadian public i really think it has a lot to do with moses nimer's vision mm -hmm. i think the fact that he had such a strong vision of demystifying television and so the station was completely accessible you know, um, you could stand and watch the shows being done like outside, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> and you could watch us all and you could, we had tours walking through like, I don't know, four or five tours a day, most days. Mm -hmm. So you'd be like live on the air mm -hmm. doing your thing. And they'd just be like random people standing around watching you, wow. you know, and in a break, you'd be taking pictures and signing autographs. Um, so I think people connected. People just connected in a different way. We weren't in, um, to be honest, in a sterile studio, mm -hmm. you know, beaming in from somewhere in Canada. Mm -hmm. You knew where we were. We were at 299 Queen yes. Street West. People came to Toronto. They came down to that corner of 
Queen and John. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it was the fact that it was so accessible and the fact that everything we did was live. Um, it was not studios. It was one great big open room. The control room was right there. Uh, all the desks were right there. The editing bays were right there. So we're all in this one big room. So literally, again, you'd be live on the air chatting and people are like working all around you and they're part of the shot. They're part of the scene. Sometimes they'd like, I mean, we had people walk through the shot and you'd be, okay, excuse me. I'm on the air here. Do you mind? (laughs) Come on, guys. Like, you know, it had that raw edge to it. I'm I'm Mm. very curious because you didn't come from a. A, a television background at that time, right? Not, you not have, at all. Not at all. Uh-uh. So walk me through just your first electric circus. You're you're going on air. Um, you would add some help, hopefully, uh, or not. I don't know. But what was no. the first show like? Well, okay. So I'll tell live, you. Live, first of all, that's three hours of live television nationally, right? Well, no, no. Okay, so I'll tell you what. Here's the thing. People, people sort of focus on EC, which is wonderful and great. And I love EC and I'm thankful because it's like the show that never went away from me. But um, I actually did five shows at the same time um, and four of them were live. Okay. So I did two on City, two on Much, and EC was shared by both. Mm -hmm. So when I went um, to Toronto, I thought I could only work on Much. I was like, all I know is music. That's my only background. I was a club DJ. Um, I had a band, so I lived the life the way that Moses liked to hire people that had the experience of that life instead of just somebody who went to Ryerson, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and he said to me, no, you don't want to be a VJ on much. You want to learn news. You should do entertainment news. You should work on city. Hmm. And I was like, I don't know anything about news. Like, <laughs> I know nothing about television. Mm-hmm. I did 13 half-hour episodes of a music show in Winnipeg. Um, that was all I knew. I knew that when the red light goes on, you talk. And until that red light goes off, you don't do or say anything done. basically. And it was not live. So I did take two, take three, take four, take five. And the crew was incredibly patient and kind. And in Winnipeg at CKY, which was the CTV affiliate, in those 13 half-hour shows is when I realized um, that TV is not about you. It's a team. And you're only as good as your team. And that thinking, I think, had a huge part of why things worked for me when I finally <laughs> ended up in Toronto. So I started in entertainment, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and I learned how to do stories. I learned how to produce. I learned how to write. I learned how to anchor, basically. So then a few months later, I, I mean, I'd, I'd only been there. And I was terrified. I was, it was terrifying because I had no idea what I was doing. But all these people were just so kind and gave me such... Uh, patience that I kind of stumbled and mumbled my way to a point where I just learned it's not about falling down. It's about getting back up again. Yeah. And that's all it's about. So Moses came up with this idea of doing this dance show. Um, and I was kind of like, okay, sure. Sounds good. Cause I'm a club kid. Yeah. I was a very real club kid when I was in Winnipeg. Um, and so EC went on the air, like, and I had only been on the air for eight months when, and it was, again, like it was, um, I wasn't a VJ, I was a host and there's a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And basically, uh, EC was now I was talking about music, I was talking about videos, but it wasn't in this free flowing form. It was there were people dancing. There were people outside. There were artists. So you're talking to Queen Latifah and people are dancing around her. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it was a whole other <laughs> ball of wax. Uh, so the first show, um, again, I was always terrified. I'm still terrified, like every time, you know. But um, it also felt right. The thing about Electric Circus is it felt right because this was my world. Mm-hmm. News and entertainment news was not my world. This was my world. Music was my world. And personality and a live audience was my world. Because when you're a club DJ, you get immediate reaction. You know, you get immediate energy off that crowd. Mm-hmm. When you're in a band and you're playing Estevan, Saskatchewan, and Thompson, Manitoba, and Red Deer, Alberta, and you walk into these places cold and you're playing Madonna, um, you get an immediate reaction. It's a live audience. Yeah. What was it like, uh, in the introduction, I talked about the fact that you saw the the rise of hip-hop, you know, you saw uh, Birth of Grunge, Alternative Rock, uh, you had boy bands in the early aughts (laughs) as well. Yeah. Like, walk walk me through just the the artists that would come through there are there any particular favorite favorites oh, that you have god you know that was the coolest thing about that station is everybody came by so because we had we we had movie television we had fashion television we had city tv and news we had much going on like you just randomly walking around the hallway you walked into sports stars movie stars um hip hop stars you know, rock stars, Gordon Lightfoot, I mean, legends, icons. You just walked, like people were just kind of rambling around, like politicians were just rambling around for some interview with some person. But the whole thing about that station is it was just open. Yeah. You know? So, um, no, the highlights were just all of what you just said. The fact that we saw um, hip-hop come into its own, Mm -hmm. you know? Uh, The fact that we um, were able to connect this country um, in a way that it had not been connected before musically. So uh, we, I really honestly believe that much music started the build of a star system in this country mm-hmm. where people who had no idea or actually, frankly, didn't care about Canadian artists, all of a sudden they were glamorous. They were a big deal. And I think much made that happen. I really do. I mean, I know I was that kid that was so obsessed with music. And, you know, I'm an immigrant kid. Yeah. So I think about Canada in a way where I don't take it for granted for one tiny second still. If you're just joining us, we are speaking to Monica Diol, the former host of Electric Circus. I would say the only host of Electric Circus, right? Um, no, there were many more after well, I don't me. Know any, I don't know any of them. The only host for me, that's for sure. That's all that matters, quite frankly. Thank you very much. Um, look, you were a host, um, and I was reading a, a little blurb on uh, your colleague, Erica M. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's obviously, in a, like we all are, in a different stage of their, of, their, of their lives. How difficult was it for you to um, walk away from that life? You know, I mean, it's a pretty <laughs> iconic place. Amazing things you're seeing as artists coming and going you're sort of in this cultural melting pot just at the station itself. You're driving culture to a certain degree in, in this country. You're in the star system, as you called it. Mm-hmm. 
walk me through your headspace when you had when you decided to walk away. Um, I think it's why you walk away that mm-hmm. makes all the difference. Um, I met the right person mm. that I wanted to build a life with, and uh, he was in Vancouver, and I was in Toronto, and he refused to come to Toronto, <laughs> and I refused to come to Vancouver. <laughs> So this went on uh, for a little while, for a yeah. few years. And then I finally decided that um, I'd lived my, lo- my, my, my whole life on instinct. Mm. I'd done a lot of things that other people would not have done, especially coming from my background, from my culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had not done a lot of things that other people would have done. Um, and I lived my whole life on instinct. And I just, my instinct said... Um, do not lose this person. Mm -hmm. My instinct said you had a life before television, you will have a life after television. And uh, it's not the end all be all. It's not my whole identity. I actually have a whole lot more to me. Mm -hmm. And I decided if I, um, that I was going to take that, that, like it was a gamble. Yeah. You know, it was a huge gamble. And I got off at the top of the Ferris wheel and I, I left a, huge job i'm not gonna yeah i'm not gonna um i'm not gonna be phony about that like you're right it was a huge job um but i felt like i was doing what was right for me yeah and in hindsight it was exactly what was right for me um i think that the kind of um job I had, which was live television. When I came here, when I came to Vancouver, I actually anchored six o'clock news here. Uh, I left, I anchored 11 o'clock news. I really tried to keep working. Mm -hmm. I did because I love what I do. Mm -hmm. I love what I do from a, um, just from a creative and a craft and a what we're doing. Like what you're doing is important, Jazz. It matters, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And... Then it was just now I have four kids and it's like at some point something's got to give. And my husband works a lot. Yes. So at some point you have to make choices and you, I think every person makes the right choice for their own family. And no one can tell you what the right thing is, what the wrong thing is. Uh, You have to do it on your own instinct. You know, that being said, I think it's a lot harder for women because um, so much more comes into play. Uh, I wish I could uh, st- yeah, keep you around for another half hour. I really appreciate oh, you coming. Are we done? It- We're okay. done. <laughs> yeah. It just flew by. Like it's, Half an hour is going to fly by. Uh, I know four kids. I've just got to assume they know how cool their mom is. Kids never think you're cool. <laughs> you know that. Kids don't think you're well, cool. you know, you got a YouTube library you can point to. You had uh, some iconic artists. I really appreciate you coming in today. No, was thank really you so cool much. You that too. was so fun. Yeah. That was so great. Likewise. Likewise. And, and, and you have quite the story. Well, yeah, well, more to tell still. You well, have an amazing <laughs> career that, you know. It's been fun. The audience is uh, not tired of me, so I'm very lucky. I think we should all be lucky when uh, people are willing to listen to your stories. I really appreciate That's that. That's true. Thank listen, you so thank much. you so much. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. 
on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.